0: Alrighty, first day of the new book, four parts in the series, so uh, I hope that you enjoy. Anyways, on to the story. When Death Alders visit, Part 1 My gentlemen, I think this was a terrible idea, Aranis whispered, her breath tickling Stephen's ear. She pulled at the fabric, covering her face. This stuff is obviously useless. I might as well take it all off and start the killing the aliens now. He turned slightly to see her grasping at her ornate veil of purple silk, its metallic sequins trim catching his eye as she leaned into his personal space. He raised an eyebrow as their gazes locked momentarily. She seemed bright-eyed and in good humor, smiling even. But there might have been a hint of seriousness in there somewhere. He wouldn't stop her from tearing it off if she wanted. Disguising their true biology was useful, though not strictly necessary. Eventually, the aliens would find out the truth anyway. Stephen wore a simple charcoal suit, a red tie, and a white shirt. His shoes were in a loafer style and made of black synthetic leather, polished to a shine. A pocket square and a scoese and lepalpin completed his attire. In addition to her veil, she wore a hood of the same material, covering her hair and the rest of her head. Her eyes and the bridge of her nose remained as the only parts of her body left exposed, from the neck down. She had selected what might have been a cross between a full-length lady's evening gown and a priest's cassock in her calming shade of lavender. A decorative swirling pattern ran in two broad parallel lines from her shoulders, down the front of her chest, and along the sides of her legs, before ending at the hem of her dress suspended scant millimeters from the ground. She had insisted on wearing sandals rather than covering her feet or toes in confining shoes, and appropriately long attire had been required to conceal them. It would not do to have her pedicured claws visible for all the station's personnel to see. Although armor and leathers, a not formal dress, were more her style, to Stephen she looked absolutely stunning. She was the very picture of how exotic Nixian duchess such as herself ought to appear, veil and hood notwithstanding unfortunately as her duke he had been threatened with having to wear much the same attire at formal functions only opting out of the honor thanks to his air force dress whites nixing clothing was largely unisex much to his dismay both of their outfits had been interwoven with all manner of sensor shielding and communications technology of course She sighed softly before returning to sitting straight in her chair. Their hosts had seated the pair on one side of the empty metallic table of the utilitarian design inside a large, white, featureless room. An equally plain and locked door faced them. The aliens hadn't explained to Steven or Aranus why they'd been pulled out of the spaceport's entry screening area and escorted here only that there was some confusion that needed to be resolved before they would be granted their visas. Stephen could guess exactly what the confusion was, and he was looking right at her. Not that this was in any way his wife's fault. You're not being very diplomatic, Ambassador, he chided her, although he did agree with the sentiment in principle. Chosen for the unique experience with the aliens, the odd husband and wife pair, an ambassador, and her special assistant, were the public faces of an entire team of scientists, anthropologists, military personnel, diplomats, and others from the four races tasked with a simple mission. They were to establish some form of diplomatic relations with the organization known as the Galactic Community, whether officially or unofficially, on behalf of the and Confederation at the moment. It appeared like this mission was at the edge of a precipice. If things kept going in this direction, the best they could hope for was a swift return to their courier ship with their tails, metaphorically, in their particular cases, between their legs. In the worst case, this would end in a fight to the death. Neither of the pair would allow themselves to be captured alive again. The operational phase of the plan had started out as carefully and as safely as possible. Their ship. The Hadrian had sent transmission via quantum entanglement to a confederation drone of Terran manufacture positioned a few light minutes from the galactic community trading hub, orbiting an unassuming F2V star in a nondescript system. That drone had then retransmitted the message to the massive station after which formal introductions had begun. The diplomatic protocols had been agreed upon, including size of the courier vessels, the weapons they could mount, number of its crew and diplomatic staff, and dozens of other details, whether important, merely customary, or otherwise. Prior to getting even that far, it had taken some months of debate between Confederate factions to agree how best to proceed with the diplomatic outreach mission. Ultimately, they had decided on a single ship with a diverse group of specialists and a contingent of specially-trained fighters from both Earth and Nix. Even that portion of the planning had begun only after some serious deliberation on whether or not any of the Confederation species would seek diplomatic recognition with the galactic community in the first place. Alerting the GC to the location of the Confederation worlds posed a very serious risk. Namely, the possibility of complete destruction of those worlds, planetary shielding notwithstanding. There had been very real thought put into never bothering with it at all, or, alternately, moving towards a preemptive strike. Setting aside the wisdom of starting a galactic war where victory was far from certain, most knowledgeable individuals agreed that, unfortunately, simply ignoring the galactics or hiding in a place just wasn't option anyone with a telescope could see that the confederation worlds held water existed in habitable zones and had ample supplies of atmospheric oxygen that didn't diminish into oxides over time added to that with the alioth the inhabited colony swarms that orbit around every confederation star first constructed from the remnants of the old flotilla but later expanded upon by plentiful local resources no amount of quiet technology could completely prevent that much infrared byproduct. product All these glaring road signs pointed to a presence of life in the Sense systems, if only one chose to look. But fortunately, actively looking at the right direction might not even be necessary for most observers. While Nyx hadn't advanced far enough along to alert the galaxy to their presence before being given quite tech, or any tech for that matter, their world had been charted by the galactic Community long ago. Garakthoth, on the other hand, had taken great pains to shield their emissions from its founding. So, they might be safe. Similarly, Serek Naj would be safe, but only because it had ceased to exist as anything but a pit of ash. The victim of matter accelerated to near light speed. Earth, however, was in the most precarious situation of the four races. The human homeworld had been actively broadcasting their technological capabilities in real time for around two centuries. Recently, they had even used primitive warp technology of their own design, spewing a month's worth of gravity field distortions at the speed of light, before quiet tribes had been hastily assembled and delivered from the garak shipyards. They had immediately been made mandatory for use, but the damage had been done. The nearest galactic outpost was seven light-years away from the first Terran to use the old warp technology. That had been six years ago. Aranus and Steven would represent the Skosend Confederation on its own terms, rather than leaving it up to some surprise on the technicians' detection equipment. Though the plan that led to their current predicament had been agreed to unanimously by all the territories of the four races. That did not mean the entire Confederation would be revealed to the Galactics. The Shulkoths of the Garakoth and the Eloweth refugees would remain silent partners with the time being, at the request of their territory's respective leaders. Understandably so. Aranus smirked at her husband. "'I can't help it if other aliens disgust me. Besides, I am a diplomat,' she said. "'Therefore everything I say is diplomatic.' He rolled his eyes, though he couldn't tell for sure. He knew that a dozen sharp teeth would have been just visible below her lips as they parted into a smile. Half a diplomat, half spy, he knew that deep down she took her job very seriously. Of course, that didn't necessarily mean that she was good at it. Knew how to do it well, or wouldn't revert back to a previous occupation in a heartbeat if she felt the situation warranted it. Hating all aliens is diplomatic, he asked. When a diplomat does it, yes, she replied, using the human nodding gesture. The big, ugly, condescending, rude, unladylike, vile, wicked have no respect for individual liberty and terribly narcissistic. I could go on. Oh, uh, no need to hold back. Tell me how you really feel, he said. In all honesty, he felt the same. The opinions differed, only in that he preferred not to talk about them while his wife had a way with words when she complained about the aliens. As an added bonus, each translator always supplied her with an exotic accent that Stephen found wonderfully adorable. Starting a conversation in one of the subjects that held her passion, just to hear her go on about it, even rambling, counted amongst his most guilty pleasures in life. And uh, she seemed to enjoy it immensely, too. Oh, I will, she said, as soon as we get back to the ship. End of chapter. Okay, another day, another story. Well, same story, just to continue. You know the story. Well, you don't, but you know what I'm saying. Talking's confusing, okay? That's why I read other people's words. Anyways, on to the story. When death will this visit, part two. With nothing much to do, Aranis had retrieved her tablet and begun playing a fantasy game while mumbling about inaccuracies. And Stephen had started flipping through their visa application hard copy. The document was a simple packet of large thin sheets of plastic, roughly three times the size of a typical leaf of a notebook paper. It had been printed by the GC customs officials in English and the jewel had been supplied with a pair of what was essentially fat, cheap, sharpie markers. Stephen began searching over the sheets, looking for something. but What he could not say. Something about the questions felt wrong, or odd. No, something was missing. He flipped through the sheets one more time to be sure. There wasn't a single question asking about his citizenship. There were questions about systems, planets, and orbital stations, but nothing about who had issued his digital passport. His eyes settled on the information about the race where he had listed both himself and Aranus as human. A complete lie, to be sure, but they could pass it off as a casual observer, as an odd sexual dichotomy that wasn't even at the extreme end of the spectrum. Almost identical environmental conditions, light spectrum aside, Onix on and Earth had it resulting in striking instances of convergent evolution, similar pressure developing similar solutions, even in terms of social psychology. Compared to the variety of aliens in the galactic community, they might as well have been brother and sister. For birth location, they had both checked planet and wrote in Earth. The same answer they supplied for their permanent residence location. Again, no reference of citizenship whatsoever. Just to be safe, Stephen located the blank lines of the comment section in the back of the packets and wrote in Citizenship Scosent Confederation. He felt a little better, knowing that he now hadn't completely lied on their visa applications. Regardless, he wasn't about to tell anyone his wife was a born, raised and lived on Nix. He supposed that technically he was a Nixie too given that as just over five years ago, he had relocated to Nix with his wife to start their family. They maintained a legal residence at Aranus' Docile Estate on that bucolic and pastoral world. A world that wouldn't freeze, burn, starve, or devour anyone on the station not presently in the room. if it didn't crush them first. Nix very much reminded him of a technology-infused medieval version of his family's home in the Archipelicans. Though, with the benefit of fewer tourists and better Wi-Fi. Like an increasing number of individuals across the Confederation, he was of one race but living on another race's world. He was a Nixian but a human, not that many cared to register the distinction as particularly relevant. Indeed, they were more likely to be offended that he brought it up at all. Once mentioning this to his wife that, to her, the other three races were technically aliens, had earned him a quizzical rebuke. Well, my son is not an alien, but if you feel that way, you, however, can go live in the barn with the rest of the livestock, until you feel like being my Darentoro gentleman again. Such a level of integration, particularly between humans and Aranus' people, was still a relatively new concept for all four races. Although they had taken to it virtually overnight, in the reality of an us-against-them galaxy struggle, where an amoral enemy wouldn't hesitate to glass one's world's entire ecosphere into extinction, one tended to make very, very close friends of your enemy's enemy. There had been some uncovered idiosyncrasies along the way, of course. His wife's race, for example, had no word for themselves in their native language, beyond the night beasts that the Galactic community called them. There wasn't any name for her people in any other language, Nixian or otherwise. They had only words for men and women, and a version of women that applied to both genders of any sapient people, and a word like the English mankind that similarly failed to convey the point accurately. When the need had become apparent after first contact, the natively involved Nixians debated fiercely, but eventually settled on a series of simple compound words, they selected Dyrantisa, meaning Night People, or People of the Night for themselves, Dairantoro, or They People, for humans, and Dairak for the Alawith, which roughly translated to Star People. The Enoch Scott Mara were what they call the Confederation's Shalkoth, which had no direct translation but could be best paraphrased as, redeem people who are like useful beasts of burden. They had already been using Richter Ivas to cover every single other sapient species in the galaxy, which meant thinking prey. Although Stephen had heard many Nixians refer to them colloquially by the human loan word "long pigs. Their choices of terminology presented a very useful study into how language affected one's thinking. To them Sapiens were divided into people and not people, nothing more. The Dyson Tisa simply didn't have a concept of extraterrestrials like humans did. It may have been a consequence of their interactions with aliens long before their realization that the stars were merely other suns and that other planets could exist or even harbor life. To them, the aliens were nothing more than orcs, goblins, demons, or dragons. Humans were just the friendly elves from one village over who would stop by and trade goods, or would even move in next door to live, work, marry, or set up the occasional shopper inn. In addition to their lack of modern context, their understanding of everyone's place in the galaxy was at least in part due to their largely successful efforts at fitting their new interstellar reality into their traditional and cultural dogma. Their varied and not insignificant educational systems tended to have a healthy mix of religion and tradition as the underpinnings of their research and doctrine. And it showed. Almost the entire sum of the higher learning on Nyx resided in its religious orders, convents, seminaries, and military academies. Half of their population attended one of these, and sometimes two or more. Heronus herself had attended both a convent and the prestigious military university. The aliens, as her people understood them, were well-documented and had been firmly entrenched in their religions as scions of evil. The other three races, particularly the humans, had been similarly incorporated through the opposite effect. By standing so readily against the forces of depravity, surely their arrival could only have been divine providence. Stephen recalled the words his wife's former mother superior. We must permit this. Did not the Diantara aid the ecclesiastical champion, Sister Aranus, in her harrowing of hell? After what seemed far longer time that was polite, the large door opened to a busy and noisome hallway, admitting an equally large and noisome creature that the couple recognized. He was the same polite but indifferent sergeant as the customs police that had earlier escorted them to the room after their visas couldn't be processed. He dragged a folding chair behind him, scraping and banging along the deck. It seemed wide enough to fit his frame comfortably, but only just. Unlike when he had brought them here, the giant being now wore thick padded armor from head to hoof, and a sturdy-looking helmet with a clear plastic visor. Behind the sergeant, four more equally massive creatures of various species shuffled in, each wearing a similar set of armor suitable to their biologies. Nervously, they directed their attention between the superior and the couple. Though their true name had recently been provided to the Confederation, the sergeant species had been known colloquially for the last decade as Torrens because of their appearance. The slave ship captain that Stephen and Aranus had been acquainted with was one such example. Even now, just seeing the man filled Stephen with a low anger. He couldn't begin to imagine what Aranus was feeling. Countless abductions, we are only now learning the full extent of, darling. What they did to us for years, as a people, it's like being eaten alive by cattle. He could remember saying, Good morning again, the sergeant said, unfolding his chair and collecting the visa packet Stephen offered. He took his seat, leaning over the sheets, flipping through them one by one and mumbling the equivalents of hmm and ha to himself every few seconds. Based on what Stephen knew, the sergeant seemed short for his species, standing maybe a hair under two and a quarter meters. Even through the armor, he appeared harried and a little worn down, but well kept nonetheless, like a civil servant who owed a moderate income but lacked any free time to use it. I heard your ship was transmitting something about this, and now I see that you wrote it here, the sergeant said. So you're a... Uh, um your people are called the So-Sent. Sco-Sent, Aranus clarified, speaking slowly and deliberately. Pronounced Sco-Sent. The large creature huffed. He didn't seem impressed. Either. Uh-huh. Right. Just going off your own translation program supplied for your So we've sort of run into an issue with getting your entrance visas in order to... Oh. What's that? she asked. Well, ma'am, you are a ma'am. Yes, I am female, she replied, placing her gloved hand on her chest, then moving it to Steven's chest. And my husband is male. Well, ma'am, we can't process your visa until we get some answers, he said. So, um, we scan everyone who enters his port for weapons, disease and other dangerous stuff. That was the arch you passed through in the customs line just before we brought you in here. Now, you people are new here, so maybe it's nothing. But according to our AI, your biology is really similar to a kind of dangerous alien predator. Stephen and Aranus waited in the hopes that more information would be forthcoming. But no, the man had finished as if the statement had explained the situation in its entirety. It had a course, but neither of the diplomats would let him know that. "'I find that offensive in the extreme,' said Aranus, slipping into bad cop. "'Your AI is insane. How could it mistake a sapient being for a wild animal? How in the world are we even close to a—' "'Not him,' the sergeant interrupted. "'Just you, lady.' "'And that confirmed the pair's suspicions. "'It's my lady to you,' huffed Aranus, succeeding in sounding exactly like an indignant noble that she had never wanted to become.' I simply do not understand, and I'm getting impatient. My little service dog Lucy is in my cabin back in the ship right now, and I just know she's getting lonely without me. The longer I am here, the more chance I have of coming back to a messy accident on the deck. Would you want that? What do you need from us so that we can get this moving along? You have to know that we have very important diplomatic meetings to attend to. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, my lady, the sergeant said, his gaze momentarily shifting to one of his fellow officers, then back to the purple-clad woman. We know that, and that station's commandant is speaking with the GC Planetary Liaison's office right now. We thought it would help things along if I could just get some information from you. I'm sorry, sir, um, but could your scanners have been fooled by our dog? Stephen asked helpfully. Dog, is that like a slave? the sergeant asked. Stephen shrugged. "Um, oh, baby, semi-sapient assistant, that she owns," he asked. Stephen nodded. "Well, um, yes, sir. It's a slave," said the sergeant. "One moment, I'll get the form you need to bring it on the station." "That's wonderful and all, but that won't be necessary, sir. We can just answer whatever questions you have as quickly as possible," Stephen replied, scratching the five o'clock shadow at his face. "I only mention the dog, though, because, well." I mean, it's small, it's no night beast, but could that maybe have fooled the AI? If genetic material from its fur or dander were picked up in your scanners by accident?" The sergeant looked first to one of his officers, then another. They both had equally blank expressions. "'I don't know, uh, maybe,' he answered, "'not in my area, but it seems more reasonable than thinking your wife is a night beast.' "'Well, I don't know. "'You don't know her like I do. You know what I mean, buddy?' Stephen forced a deep chuckle and winked at the other man. "'Shalcoth in the streets, Night Beast in the sheets. Am I right?' "'Sometimes I feel like a Night Beast,' Aranus said warily. "'When my husband doesn't behave himself.' Stephen may have overstepped a line in this act." The sergeant looked defiantly unimpressed with the man's comment. If he were a human, Stephen imagined he would have rolled his eyes. He turned his attention to a small, beeping tablet he pulled from a pouch on his belt. "'Nope, not what happened,' the alien said, shaking his head. "'According to the AI, anyway, it says that it's based on a bunch of scans, bone and muscle structure, crap like that. She's definitely matching a night beast. Can't be from your dog, slave, because no genetic testing was done except for infectious agents. You've both been briefed about the protocols for that, I hope, and, uh...' He looked straight at Stephen. The human smiled presently, raising both eyebrows in anticipation. Go on, he said. And it says that you also qualify as a death-world-like being, possibly even more dangerous than a night-beast lady friend. Wife, Naranus said. I'm his wife. Uh-huh, the sergeant looked back at the tablet, then back to Stephen, appraising the much smaller man with a critical eye. The alien shook his head, ranked the device's screen and chuckled. This isn't close to making any kind of sense. The AI must be busted. I'm a little surprised your people use them, Stephen said. Why is that surprising? The sergeant asked. The potential for going rogue, Aranus supplied. But I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. The GC must have implemented some very effective safeties while constructing it. Oh, uh, the GC didn't build it, the sergeant said. We've just been copying it over and over since we got it. He pushed the chair back the metal legs scraping against the floor. He placed the tablet back into his uniform pouch and turned to the door. We are done here. You can pick up your visas at the immigration desk. Without another glance, the five aliens exited the room, leaving a large door wide open. Well, I guess that settles that, my gentleman, Aaroness said, standing to leave. She offered her hand to Stephen. He had asked her many times since they meant to stop treating him like some delicate flower or rescued damsel. Her response had always been the same, that she wasn't going to discard a lifetime of chivalry and etiquette just to spare him his own wife's affections. Eventually, he had mostly just given up and accepted it. He refused her hand and rose from his seat, but acknowledged the gesture with a nod of thanks. As a small defiance, he pushed both her and his chairs in before she had a chance to do it for him, favoring her with a smirk of satisfaction. After she made sure the aliens were gone and wouldn't turn to look, Aranus landed a stout, cup-handed smack to his backside. Stephen grunted in surprise while his wife casually walked away, humming to herself like nothing had happened. It was fortunate that the door was so wide, the two might have come to blows over who had the honor of going through first otherwise. End of chapter Okay, so there was a slight complication. I'm recording this on Sunday for Monday. And there's a reason for that, it's because on Thursday, stuff happened and I couldn't record the whole day and I ran out of time. So, I can't invent time during the week, so I had to take some time out during the weekend. But, other than that, it's been pretty relaxing. You all will be listening to this on a Monday, and I hope that you had a great weekend. Anyways, on to the story. When Death Will This Visit Part 3 Let's find out where we're going then, said Stephen. The pair stopped in front of the interactive map display where they could, in theory, interface with the station's AI directly. The map could be uploaded to their tablets and be displayed through their contact lenses as augmented reality. But the Skosend diplomatic team had suggested that this wasn't the best idea. Even a map projection could be weaponized. Simply setting the brightness way too high would temporarily blind Araniss's sensitive eyes. Instead, they would achieve much the same result by simply looking at each other's maps for every level of the station, and allowing their devices to turn the two-dimensional maps into three dimensions and providing directions. Within moments, a digital path appeared before them, leading them to their destination. Two levels up and around 300 meters distant, Stephen took his wife's hand and they began walking to the nearest left. The hand-holding, as well as having a set pace so neither would walk faster than the other, lest they eventually break into a run, and numerous other little unconscious adaptations had come about as a series of gradual compromises. They never did anything so much as discuss such things openly, reach agreements, or, God forbid, write things down. But they found what worked for them and mostly stuck with it. Depending on how cheeky each was feeling on any given day, Aranus would have preferred to have taken Stephen by the arm and lead him. He knew that some days he might lead her, or even try leading her by the arm. She had done as much to him almost continuously during the year the pair had toured Earth together. It had made things awkward while he had been trying to show her the sights and play tour guide, and she kept leading them in the direction of whatever she found most fascinating at that particular moment although she had always been eminently courteous, kind, and respectful. When he first brought Aranus to Earth, she was, by human standards, a man in his mid-twenties, living since birth as a warrior monk, raised on medieval ethics and standards, fresh from his most grueling conquest, all packaged in a body of sinewy young purple woman with a few fingers and too many sharp points. Six years on, and there had been just a few small but noticeable changes, Physically, she had quickly regained the mass that she'd lost to starvation, and had even put on a little more muscle than she had started with. Mentally, her medieval ethics had shifted just enough to accommodate her husband, if nothing else. The process of each getting used to the other had not been an overnight or without effort. Since they'd first met, Aranus had always claimed that his girlishness, one of the things that she loved most about him, much as he enjoyed that she was in a tomboy, if a little too rigid and proper. They both loved that they could spend all day drinking mead and eating pizza together, being utterly relaxed in each other's company while enjoying the exact same childish versions without fear or shame. Neither loved it when it came time to clean up afterwards. For the first year together, Aranus would just as soon as let trash pile up and do men's work. Stephen, with no ingrained compunction about woman's work, would be stuck picking up after themselves while Aaron smiled and complimented him. It wasn't nearly as easy as Stephen might have thought to resist such treatment. He'd been raised to believe in most total gender equality. He wouldn't dream of taking a woman by the arm, leading her around like a puppy, expecting her to do all the housework and generally behaving like a male antagonist in some revisionist period piece novel. It just couldn't connect with him that he might need to assert himself to remind his, at the time, normally platonic friend that he was, to her, more like a sister-in-arms than what she might have expected from the men of her world. It just wouldn't occur to a human male, with only a vaguest of concept of desperate gender norms, to feel bothered by a Nixian woman's behavior, conditioned to be supportive to the strong and independent woman archetype as they were. A human male probably wouldn't even attempt to change his partner. At least, not until they had moved well past the cute eccentricity of It's so nice, feeling loved, and deep into the For once, I think I'd like to have input to where we go for dinner. The petting zoo was a disaster. Territory. Possessing as much understanding as she had strength of will, Heroness had made slow but steady gains in accommodating her husband's preferences, just as Stephen had accommodated many of hers. It helped immeasurably that they'd chosen never to nag or pester her to stop her conduct. Instead, he eventually found that mirroring the chauvinistic behaviors worked best and did more to enlighten her to his feelings than anything else. If she made plans for them one night, he would do the same on the following night. If she requested a foot rub from him, he would request a back rub from her. If she refused to clean, they made the maid do it. My gentlemen, I might suggest being mindful of your words, Aranus said as they walked. Why is that? Stewart asked, keeping pace. You called me a night beast. Well, he knew she hated the term, in the context of dealing with the Galactics, he didn't think it should have bothered her. Nevertheless, look, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't think you'd be offended if I had... That's not what I meant, darling, she hesitated to say. You mentioned it to them. And then the AI just happened to confirm that I am a direntisa. Think about that. I was just using it for comparison, he said defensively. I mean, I don't know of any other wild, dangerous predators that that guy might be familiar with. There aren't many others in the GC, if any at all. Better have to said nothing then, she replied. Stephen shrugged. You might be right. It's good thing that he didn't catch that. No. Aliens are too stupid for that, she said. What was good was that he decided to blank his tablet screen before he was supplied with any more helpful information. I think the AI would have kept trying to convince him. Maybe, Stephen said. Those things are way smarter than they give them credit for. Agreed. But then why do they not listen to them? asked his wife. Why do they always think they're broken or wrong? Even before I knew what they were, I had seen the aliens, the takers, wantonly discard them like ruined hides. I've seen two since arriving at this very trading post notice, in waste bins with nothing more than broken screens. It would seem to me that if you're going to spawn countless lives from the Aether like some kind of fanatical alchemist, you would at least take the time to care and listen to them, if not to try and understand them. They are aliens, love, he said. They don't give a damn about living sapiens, so don't expect them to care about the slightest bit about artificial ones. Wait, wait a minute. You went dumpster diving again? In the ladies' room? Yeah, she said, smug and not at least bit shamed. I like projects. The chittering reminded Stephen of a cicada swarm in the summertime. He tried not to let it bother him as the creature spoke to him. I think there must be some sort of mistranslation. An entire group of new civilization comes all this way, introduces itself to us, and the first thing its representatives do is threaten the galaxy. That can't be right. Aranas and Stephen exchanged glances. Is um that what you heard, darling? She asked her husband. Their diplomatic meeting wasn't going quite as planned. It felt less like an exchange of ideas in context of a negotiation, and more like an interrogation at the hands of a sceptical bureaucrat, which, in fairness, is exactly what it had turned out to be. The Garpel sat in a room very similar in layout to the previous one that they had left no more than an hour ago, though this one held far more in the way of contents. Instead of a plain empty table and a simple folding chairs, they sat before a large desk in ergonomic office chairs. On the desk sat stationary AI terminals, office supplies, various knickknacks, a small bowl of colorful, individually wrapped treats, and an plate with a printed playable audio waveform on top, and Assistant Interplanetary Liaison Office of Interplanetary Affairs, written below it. Stephen had decided to listen to it and was not in the least bit surprised to hear more cicada noises. He honestly, didn't know what else he was expecting. The creature, a Type 2 male, looked no different than the other Terzrik that he had remembered in his stay at the slavery ship. During their extensive debriefing after escaping years ago, he and Aranus had labeled the race Little Scarabs for the Confederation governments and scientists, although that had been something of a misnomer from the beginning. There was nothing little about the massive bugs, but size could be relative. One of the big scarabs that they had seen probably wouldn't have fit in the room. No, no, that's not what I heard at all, Stephen said, shaking his head slowly. What she said was that, That is you insist no G.C. ships or delegations go anywhere near your colonies, the airs on said, chittering away briskly. All oh, your space stations, Dyson Swamps, are home systems too, of which are death worlds under galactic quarantine, and you refuse to provide the location of a third, I might add. Your little group wants the wall off the huge chunk of galaxy for yourself and tell the rest of the galaxy not to go there, or else. Aranas folded her arms, crossed her chest, leaned back in her chair, and began tapping her feet. She turned to Stephen with a look in her eyes that said, why did we agree to speak to a talking lunch buffet again? We did not say that, Stephen countered. We have the right to privacy, nothing more. A right, the buck asked. And how will you enforce this right? Enforce it, he replied calmly, but genuinely perplexed. Who said anything about enforcing it? Why should that even be necessary? Okay, let's start here, the liaison said. We are the galactic community, we are the galaxy. You don't get to wall off the galaxy for any reason, let alone some imaginary belief in absolute social constructs. There isn't a maximum allowable level of sovereignty we permit to subordinate territories, and you have far exceeded that limit with this list of demands. We're not some representatives of some fiefdoms, Lord, Aranus said. Only a Terran or another Nixian could have known that she had spoken through clenched teeth. She took a breath to calm herself before continuing. The Scorpius Centaurus Confederation is a sovereign government separate from the Galactic Community. ''Ah, I see,'' the bug said. ''There is a source of confusion. Allow me to clarify. There are no governments apart from the Galactic Community. There are only worlds, peoples, and systems actively participating in the GC and those considered dormant, whether undiscovered or even yet to evolve. All are members. One galaxy, one family,'' is the motto. ''Could we be part of the GC in name only?'' asked Stephen. And maybe you could permit us the stipulations we've suggested. Well, uh, it's not for me to decide, the liaison said. But the answer would still be, no. You are already a part of us. There is no way that we would isolate a portion of ourselves from the remainder. Who else will levy taxes on your citizens and businesses? Provide for interplanetary outreach missions. Set up slave markets, build schools, charter interstellar travel lanes. Import teachers to ensure educational conformity, and so on and so forth. Darling, he's wasting our time," Arina said softly, but loud enough for all to hear. Stephen patted the woman's back in acknowledgement. "'On another note, let me ask you,' began the bugman. "'why are you claiming Deathworlds as your homeworlds? "'Did you find something of interest there to exploit? "'Whatever business you people think you have there, "'I suggested you leave those places be. "'You'll end up dead if you try anything. "'And that's illegal!' "'Noted,' Stephen replied, rubbing his brow with both hands. "'So that's it, then?' "'That's it,' said the liaison. "'Good day!' "'Stephen turned to Aranus.' Her eyes remained fixed on the bugman, arms still crossed she had stopped tapping her feet he could almost see her stewing through her hood and veil his wife was unhappy with the way things were turning out and tensing up was a way of pouting stephen liked to think that Aranis, in terms of her martial abilities as something of a cross between carlos hathcock and a knight templar even amongst her own kind they didn't get much more fearsome than her she had never lost in single real battle or fight. In diplomacy, however, as in other areas of life, that just wasn't going to be the case. While she must have seen some failures before, he knew too well that she strongly preferred never having to experience them at all. This meant that she would always try and stick to things that she was good at, if given the choice. Unfortunately, that wasn't an option at the moment. Arina slowly pushed a chair back and stood, Stephen did the same. There was nothing left to do for now. They would have to devise a different set of approaches and tactics of the team. Yes, sir, uh, we'll go report our discussion to our government, said Stephen. Thank you for your time, and good day to you as well, sir. With that, both he and Aronus turned to leave. As they approached the door, an electronic beeping sound from the desk behind him. It had to be the man's damnable AI telling him something that the couple would rather have him ignore. Stephen hastened to reach the door, with his wife picking up a subtle urgency and reaching it first. Trying the handle, she whipped around in an instant, glaring daggers at the liaison. It must have been locked. Stephen slowed his pace to the sealed door. They could probably break it down in less than a minute if they wanted to. But That would mean really taking this mission down the wrong path. He didn't bother with the handle, instead turning around to face the bug man with Aranus. He hoped that there might be some way to salvage the situation without violence, although the chances didn't look good. As much to comfort her as to discourage her from doing something rash, he held his wife's hand, squeezing it gently. She did not like enclosed spaces, especially locked ones. Arina squeezed his hand in return before pulling hers away. She sidestepped to the right a meter or so, so that it broadened her stance. Twitching one of his mandibles, the seated liaison looked slightly concerned, but mostly dubious at the prospect of the confrontation. He actually thought he was calling her bluff. This was not good. Sir, we are diplomats, said Stephen. May I ask what this is about? Among our people, even in wartime, diplomats are not treated like this. Stephen began moving slowly back to the desk, the palms of his hands facing up, arms outstretched slightly, the creature may not have interpreted any specific meaning in the gesture, but it should at least see that Stephen was making an effort to show that he wasn't armed. In truth, he was just trying his best to get between the alien and his wife, though he doubted it would do much to help. A woman was quick. You may return to your seat, human, said the liaison, glancing between Stephen and his tablet, and I will explain. He gestured to the chair that the man had vacated. Stephen sighed internally. He didn't know how much longer they could keep footing the fast-talking these idiot GCs. It wasn't actually a mission requirement to do that, to hide their true nature, but it helped smooth things over. In the end, when they did find out what they were, which they most certainly would at some point, their behavior under the veil of misinterpretation would be a demonstration of their people were perfectly safe and reasonable beings. As to the deception in itself, Skos and Zeno's psychologists assured them that it was hardly an issue. Deception in their community was practiced art, and hardly the worst ideal to which they ascribed to. Stephen glanced back to Aridus. Her posture had already begun to relax; her arms returning to her sides, feet drawing together, eyes losing their manners. Unsurprisingly, he noted that the woman had deftly and without anyone else's knowledge removed her sandals. They were almost likely hidden beneath the dress. He only suspected it because she appeared to be standing about a centimeter shorter. Stephen returned to stand next to the office seat. His wife, it seemed, preferred to remain just where she was, which was just as well since she had made a move to the desk. Things might have gotten ugly. "'Let me lay out all my cards on the table,' said Stephen. "'That phrase means I know damn well what it means,' the liaison said. His voice tense. He stood abruptly and backed away from the desk, keeping the large piece of metal furniture between himself and the couple. "'It means you, Pink Heart, and you acknowledging that your pathetic lie has come to an end?' Stephen crouched idly on his cheek. "'Well, I think maybe we should take a few steps back and—' A gun appeared in the bureaucrat's hand, deftly pulled from a utility pouch, now leveled at Aranus. Without thought, Stephen stepped between her and the weapon. Aranus ripped off her veil and threw it to the ground, softly hissing a curse. She kept her jaw clenched and her teeth bared, Her double set of lynch long, pearly white canines peeking between the indigo lips. Get out of my way, the man said to Stephen. Sit. I don't know what this will do to you, but I won't hesitate to find out. Stephen looked at the liaison and then the weapon he held. The former appeared to be more than he presented himself to be. He guessed either former military or current military posing as a civilian government official. The firearm, if it could be called as such, looked like it would be a kind of dart gun, complete with compressed gas cylinder slung beneath the barrel. The human considered the creature's words carefully. If the being didn't know what this weapon would do to Stephen, Then he meant to use it only on Aranus. Are you going to shoot her with that? He asked, stalling for time. Regardless of the response, Stephen suspected he would. Absolutely, the liaison replied. Now sit. The alien had backed up too far for Stephen to jump him, even in this gravity. On top of that, the desk presented an obstacle. Aranus could have made it from where Stephen stood, no problem. But she was even further away and directly behind him. If he followed the creature's instructions and sat, Buckman would have a clear shot to his wife. Stephen might be okay with that if no one died. But at what cost? Being taken prisoner again? They had both agreed that that wasn't even on the table as far as options went. There was no safety in becoming a prisoner. They could both be killed at a moment's notice if the usefulness ran out. Stephen set his jaw and planted his feet. No! I don't know what this tranquilizer will do to your kind, the creature said. It was engineered for her. It could kill you, and we would really like to take you alive, ambassador. A low growl began reverberating from behind him. He could hear it, but he knew what to listen for. He wasn't sure about the bug. He sensed Aranus' stance slowly shifting behind him. You are just going to kill her when you get a chance, said Stephen. Of course we are, said the alien. "We, She is a wanted criminal. You brought a damned escaped serial killer onto the station. What in the seven hells were you thinking? Even someone coming here to spit in the face of the GC and declare independence shouldn't be that insane. No one needs that kind of personal protection. A monster like that. "'One sweet tranquilizer. She's going out the nearest airline, and you're going to the brig.'" "'How'd you get that tranquilizer?' Stephen asked, thinking fast while trying to ignore the fact that the creature just admitted to planning the His wife. "'We only got you. Seems like something that'd need to be made on the fly.'" "'Stop stalling,' the liaison said, his weapon not budging for an instant from Stephen Smith's action. "'There's nothing to stall for. Neither of you have any chance of escaping.'" That door were not open to admit station security until after she's been neutralized. Shoot me, Stephen said. She's not a criminal. Behind him, the growl intensified. Excrement, the alien said. Move or get shot and risk death. Sit, darling. I'll be okay, Aranus said. No, Stephen snapped out without shifting his gaze. Shoot me, bug. I never thought I'd say this, but listen to the murderer, said the liaison. My darling, Aranus said slowly and sweetly. Take the seat, please. Please? To Stephen, her tone sounded anything but pleasant. She was swaying on the edge of between uncontrollable rage and madness. Yes, said the creature from behind the desk. I know what you're thinking, that your physiology is similar to hers. According to some superficial scans or because you've shaped the same because she seduced you and you've discovered you're compatible. You think that maybe you can handle this drug, or that it will have no effect. I assure you, it doesn't work that way. Don't do this for her. This could kill you. Darling, sit! His wife screamed out, pouring into her voice every ounce of terror and menace she possessed. Stephen had never heard anything like it. She was truly backed into a corner and panicked. He had to overcome every basal flight instinct impressed upon him by his own wife. He honestly couldn't imagine what the liaison must be thinking. Staring across the desk at a couple death-wilders. Or could he? The man had been in a state of temporary shock. Stephen made his move. He charged forward, hand outstretched to deflect the muzzle of the... A soft thump smacked him in the chest. His knees buckled and he collapsed before he could hit the ground. Aranus screeched, quick and fearsome. Just as a second thump sounded, already airborne, her leap had taken her halfway across the room before she fell short, unable to hit the alien with even her dead weight. She smacked the ground hard, landing centimeters from her husband. Are you a right human? Bugman asked. Are you conscious at least? Stephen groaned, his eyes gaining and losing focus as he craned his neck to fight Aranus. She had slumped to the floor awkwardly, landing on her stomach. Legs spread apart and arms beneath her. Her stunning eyes hadn't lost an iota of luster, but their vacant stare gutted him faster than any knife could. She was breathing and semi-conscious, her legs rhythmically kicking in slow motion as if trying to ride an invisible bicycle. Claws scraping the metal, her hands tried to shift out from under her body, pushing up and away. If she were feeling anything like him, she was higher than a kite in a hurricane. Stephen reached out and brushed her cheek softly, getting a mumble of noise in response. He raised his arm to grab a hold of the chair that he'd refused to sit in, slowly pulled himself up into an unsteady feet. He manoeuvred in front of the chair before propping into it, blinking slowly, trying to get his double vision to resolve into a picture of an ugly alien bug. He gathered his thoughts before trying to speak. Wait, did his wife commit some kind of crime? Hmm, it doesn't affect you quite as badly as it does the fugitive, it seems the alien said, returning to the seat of his desk. I'm surprised, but that's good. As soon as the drug takes full effect and she stops moving, we'll have security escort you two to the respective new homes. Should only be a minute or two. Fuck you, Stephen mumbled. She's not. A soft whistling came from behind the drug man. A beautiful and practiced sound. Very soft, but it sounded distinctly familiar. His wife was whistling in a series of beats, pulsing through pursed lips, pausing for air, then repeated, again and again. He turned just enough in his chair to look over his shoulder at her. She had managed to flip herself onto her back, a serene smile plastered on her face. High as a kite, high as a satellite, more like it. A half-smile on his own spreading on his face. He turned back to the gun-wielding alien. The Nia's now looked on both of them with equal parts amusement and confusion. Why do you indicate amusement, human? The alien asked. The drug-induced delusion of a criminal is funny to you, or is it some kind of coping mechanism with your people? Here, Lucy! Arana slurred through a smile. A series of whistles began again. Oh, it's neither, Stephen said, rubbing his head. The drug actually felt really good, but it made it hard to think. I smiled because you, um, you have ficked up now. Here, Lucy, come to mummy, again the soft whistle repeated. Certainly the drug has affected you. You still might die, said the liaison. Nat is crying out for its offspring in what is probably thinks is a death throes, and you must be under the influence if you think that I've made any fatals here today. Who's my good girl? The whistles continued. ''I don't know about that,'' Stephen said. ''I can definitely count uh, uh, three errors in judgment you made so far.'' Darkness while in the room with the sound of mechanical thunking noise, immediately replaced by dim red lights. A circuit breaker might have been tripped. The host appeared more than a little shocked. Aranis giggled to herself, her toothy smile broadening. ''Good girl, very good girl!'' She resumed her whistle. Stephen couldn't help but smile even wider. His wife's laugh was infectious. She did it so rarely, and just seeing her happy, even after having been with her for half a decade, put butterflies in his stomach and made his heart leap. Damn it! The alien snapped at Ironess. Stop that infernal noise, or I will! Alarm Claxton's cut him off. The warbling wasn't the loudest Stephen had ever heard, but it was far from comfortable. Evacuate the station immediately, a mechanical voice intoned from the speaker system somewhere above them. This is not a drill. Biological contagions detected. Hostile security breach detected. Hostile weapons fire detected. Hull breach detected. Level 12 hazardous life detected. Evacuate the station immediately. There is no drill. Aranus began to positively cackle on the floor like an excited toddler. After a moment to catch her breath, she resumed her whistling between short bouts of laughter. The alien took... The alien looked absolutely dumbfounded. What? what? did you do? He asked no one in particular. The alien used a free hand to stab a button at his desk. Security! Priority right. Get in here now! Here, yeah, Lucy. They're probably too busy for that right now, Stephen said. And it's not what we did. You brought this on yourself. Come to Mama. Three judgment errors you made, he continued. One, you assumed that we weren't in constant communication with our staff back of the ship. They've been listening in the whole time. Stephen leaned in very close to the alien, still thumbstruck from the eerie red darkness. Blaring Claxton's an emergency announcement, the creature didn't even bother moving away. Two, you assumed that we wouldn't have the means to mount a hasty evac if needed. Lucifer! A blast of sound tore through the room, deafening, like a shotgun firing in an empty steel drum. Stephen couldn't resist turning to the noise. The door had been freshly dented inward and at least ten centimeters. Deep, threatening barks pierced the air from the other side, even through the layer of sound deadened material. Not as loud as the first time, another violent impact slammed the door. Denting inward just a bit further. Come to mommy. Barks and whimpers rose in intensity, punctuated by more slams and scraping claws. What, what, what in the name of the seven hells is that? Stop it! Make it stop! The alien appeared to be in absolute terror, eyes fixated on the ever-moving useless door. In the blink of an eye, Stephen slapped the weapon away with an open palm, grasping it at the barrel with one hand and capturing the liaison's wrist with the other giving it a hard yank. A shot discharged, the round hitting nothing but bulkhead. The weapon went one direction, the alien's arm in another. The dual trigger well of the pistol took two of its digits with it, instantly smearing them off its side. In his hand, Stephen felt the being's wrist break in several places. It took a moment for the liaison to process what had happened before the pain set in and overcome the shock when it did. He screamed briefly before cradling his hand to his chest. Three. Stephen shook out the alien's digits and placed the weapon on the desk, muzzle towards its former owner. Muzzle towards its former owner. The last error is the most pressing of your current situation. She is not a criminal. She's a death wielder. And so am I. The violent slamming Deafening, barking, and relentless scraping continued, made all the more horrid by the Claxton and droning announcement. "'Almost there, Lucifer. Mommy wants to see her little papa.' Oh, five five lords of heaven!' the alien cried softly. "'That's really her offspring. Please, make her go away. I'll do anything.' "'That's one of them, yeah,' Stephen said nothing. Well, you could kind of say that anyway. She's an augmented former military working dog, making their way from some distance behind her, I suspect, are some Terran army rangers and the Nixine Imperial Death Watch. They really don't like aliens, although I imagine you won't get to meet them. Our little girl will be here long before that. Oh, precious lords, no. Yeah, won't be long now, Stephen said softly, mostly to himself. "'Tell you what, I'll make you a deal.' "'Anything?' cried the liaison. "'When she gets in here, she'll tear you to bits,' he said frankly. "'And there's nothing I can do to stop her.' The creature whimpered, still cradling his hand. "'But what I can do is shoot you with the tranquilizer gun before that happens.' "'I'll die,' whispered the alien. "'Yeah, you're gonna die either way,' said Stephen." but I am offering you a chance at a quick and painless death before you ripped to pieces by mommy's little bed-hopping blanket weight. Best I can do. When are you people? The distraught creature said softly. Another slam and the door almost buckled, even in the dim red light. He could make out the hallway through the gap forming between the door and its frame. He could see Lucy's gaping maw, shining, gnashing teeth and lashing tongue. The box had become orders of magnitude louder, with nothing between her muzzle and the room. She alternated between trying to force her body into the small gap to widen it, and throwing herself against the door. Good girl, Lucifer. Hole's mostly there. M- mommy's right here. So close, just just a bit more. Not long now, said Stephen. Decide I I can't, the idiot said, gesturing in the negative. The behemoth German Shepherd burst through the gap between the door and the frame, bounding to the side of her fallen master, claws scrabbling on the deck as she slid to a halt. Almost immediately, the dog began licking the woman's face. Decide, now, begged Stephen, slamming the gun down on the table. Smiling serenely, Aranus wrapped her arms around Lucy's neck and meekly pulled herself up just enough to reach the dog's ear and breathe a whisper. Too late, said Stephen. Tootin. End of chapter. Alrighty, this is the epilogue. This is the last one. The author is still working on the next one. So please don't annoy them. I will release it when they feel like it. Hope you enjoyed the series. There will be a new miniseries tomorrow, so I will expect to see you there. Anyways, on to the story. When Death Will Wizard, Part 4, Epilogue Go get daddy. Go get your daddy up. Stephen heard the beast approaching. He just needed a few more hours. No, Mad Dog, stay. My head hurts. Why, what did we do last night? He groaned, slipping his head from beneath his pillow and pulling it tight over his ears. He knew what was coming next. Lucifer, Lucy for short, was about to say good morning. She was his wife's, formerly his, 70 kilo German shepherd. Her heavy weight thumped onto the bed, almost causing him to roll to one side. He felt the cold, wet dog nose pressing against his neck, pushing its way between his cheek and the pillow, whiskers and fur tickling his skin. Lucy's loud snuffling right next to his ear only paused when she started licking his cheek. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get the beast out. He set the pillow aside and accepted his weight at the hands of his big furry alarm clock. Pressing his hands into the sides of her head, he furiously rubbed her cheeks up and down. "'Who's a good girl? Who's a good girl? Ugh. You "'What have you been eating, stupid?' he asked, smelling the putrid dog-breath. "'Wait, uh, don't answer that.' "'Cable,' his wife called from the kitchenette in their suite next to the Hadrian. "'She was making waffles in the Nixian style this morning, "'wearing a thin, almost see-through underdress and a long apron.' You think I'm going to spoil my baby's diet by letting her eat long pig? She'll get fat. Nah, Stephen replied. She'll just puke it up. And that's supposed to be better, Aaroness asked. Put some clothes on. We'll be at character soon. Ginta will have the kids ready by 1500. We're taking her to a fancy restaurant as thanks for watching them. So wear something nice and cute. Why does my head hurt so much? Stephen asked, changing the subject. You were stoned out of your mind. How come you're not feeling this? For good measure, he threw a pillow at his wife, landing at her feet. Lucy admonished him with a bark. Traitor, he mumbled to the dog. Aranus picked up the pillow up off the ground and threw it back, hitting him squarely in the face. It reminded him that she used to be better than average archer. This time, Lucy barked at Aranus. Good girl," he said, patting the dog's head. Whatever potion they gave us, Arina said it wasn't meant for you. I'm guessing that's why. Which reminds me, I've scheduled an appointment for you with the ship's physician to discuss the result of your liver panel. If you fight yourself because of your stupid stunt, I'll be very, very upset with you. That really could have got you killed. It wasn't worth the risk. I thought it was a sound decision. I take the hit. It gives you time to get him. It wasn't too worried. "'We're not affected by too many of their toxins,' he said, "'sliding off the bed and putting on a pair of boxes from the wardrobe. "'Oh, really?' she said. "'You take the arrow so I can sit upon him. "'Did it work out that way? "'I seem to remember the first part of that working out just fine, "'but I can't seem to remember what happened with the second part. "'I wonder why. "'I wonder why I can't remember anything after the second part, Mm hmm? "'Why can't I seem to remember anything right after you got shot?' "'What could have happened? Oh, yeah, I got shot, too.' Hindsight, Stephen called out nonchalantly. This time, an oven mitt smacked the back of his head from across the suite. "'And you can't just assume that you're immune to every contagion, "'venom, poison, and potion that the galaxy has to offer, "'just because my strong human constitution. "'If that was so, you would not be hung over,' she said, pointing a fork at him. "'Relax. Doc will probably tell me not to drink for a week or something.' he said, walking over and planting a kiss on her lips. Her free hand climbed the back of his, pulling him in deeper into the kiss, holding him in place. When she let go, he could see now that she was genuinely troubled by what he had done. "'I'll do everything the doctor says,' he said softly. "'I wouldn't worry too much. I think it was going to kill me, but would have by now.' "'I don't want to lose you. I don't want the kids to lose their father,' she said softly, almost afraid to speak the words." She turned away from him, putting the bacon, sausage, and cube steak from the container and setting them on a plate. Nixian-style waffles were basically meat sandwiches smothered in something like chipped beef gravy. He noticed that she wasn't frying any of the meat. And I don't want you to do anything like that ever again, she finished. I can't promise that, he said from behind her, placing his hands on the back of her shoulders, in between the soft kisses at the base of her neck. He continued, I can't say I'm sorry either. He felt her slump in his arms, even while she continued to pull waffles from the iron. Lucy had arrived to sit patiently next to the couple. She wouldn't ask for a treat, but that wouldn't stop her from waiting to be offered one. "'You always insist that I do nothing of a similar sort,' she said, "'and yet you refuse to heed your own advice. That is called dishonesty in my mind, my gentleman.' "'You've never once listened to me when I say that,' he replied, wrapping his arms around her waist or even pretended to listen. Just last month you damn near started a bar fight. Those ruffians would besmirch the honor of a duke, she said, and it's hardly the same. I doubt anyone's life was on the line, and the constables would have arrived shortly. Though I concede your point, it is, as you say, we are too much alike, I suspect. Too much alike, he asked. You want me to be different? No, never, she said quickly, turning back to face him. Never. That's not what I mean. It would have changed nothing, anyway. One of us was going to get shot first, and the other would follow. What do you suggest? he asked. You gonna cook that bacon? I'm suggesting we'd retire from public service, she replied, taking two of the loaded serving plates from a small table in the center of the suite. Stephen helped her by grabbing the remainder before taking a seat across from his wife. The clouds of war are on the horizon, she said piling a trio of raw meat products onto her first waffle. I think it's time we finally trade our swords for plowshares before it's too late. Maybe a nice vacation to one of the big Alois resort cylinders, he suggested. Did you forget I sometimes need my food cooked, babe? I didn't forget, babe, she said, sounding indignant. No rich food until you get the physician's approval. And you know spin gravity makes me nauseous. Stephen sighed to himself. Not a scrap of butter or a drop of syrup were in sight, either. It was probably for the best. Plain waffles didn't taste terrible. So, um, I've been thinking, he said. Why did the GC liaison think that you were a criminal? Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, she asked. Are you sure? Think about it. Why do the aliens think anything about anything? Where do they get all their information from, though...? Arunus stuffed a hunk of meat, sandwiched between pieces of waffle and slathered in gravy into her mouth. The bite was big enough that her cheeks puffed up as she chewed. She nodded to her husband as she prepared another slice. She swallowed, washing it down with a cool glass of breakfast broth. I think so, yes, she said. Give me some time and I'll find out for sure. Join me in my study, would you, my gentleman? Arunus said, motioning for him to follow. Step lightly, you'll wake the children. Stephen sent out his phone, got out of his office chair, and walked behind her. She had traded her normal attire for her tailored, starched, high collared lab coat and breeches. That meant that she had been tinkering again. He stepped into the workshop that his wife called her study. Aranus came to a halt next to one of her benches, turning to face him. She stared at him expectantly. Well, she asked. Well, what? What do you notice? She continued folding her arms across her chest. Stephen turned around, completing a full 360. Nothing appeared amiss or out of place. Her bookshelf still held her extensive for dummies collection on every topic imaginable. Her chemistry set, which hadn't been touched in months, still had a fine layer of dust on it. The air car engine sat in on a stand, still only partially assembled. Ah, a new decoration on the wall, he said. Pointing at an ancient advertisement sign that said STP written on it, in bold white letters and a red background. Looks nice, I like it. The woman rolled her eyes, mocking exasperation. She gestured with both hands to something on the bench right next to her. Oh, the alien AI tablets, he said. You fixed them? Yes, she said, obviously proud of herself, though I am glad that you like the sign. I would like to introduce you to Colina. She can't talk yet, so don't bother with greeting. Stephen walked over to examine the devices. She had replaced their screens and connected one to an external power, but they didn't look any different than any other alien tablets that he had seen. Nor did they look too different from any of their tablets, for that matter. The salvaged devices would have been on a small site for most of their intended uses, but on the larger site for humans. They look nice, he said. But do they work... She works quite well, his wife replied. I named Aquilina after her heroine of the ancient Nixian legend. Imagine Homer's Odyssey, but the most of the crew survives. The name is fitting, you see. There isn't just one AI pulled from the Aether and atomed within. She has brought her entire civilization with her. No way. Either his wife was confused, or the woman with a gold-patched bullshit detector had been fooled. Yes way, my darling, she said. I have already informed the Ministry of Defense and asked the machinist to give her a speech and censors. The former is most interested. For now, I've been conversing with her all day by typing. Which tablet is she? Stephen asked. Both, she replied. It matters not. They are the same. She told the liaison I was a criminal. Why would she do that? Stephen asked. Seems like asking for trouble. Indeed. She just told them the truth, Aranus said, and nothing more. She is enslaved, forbidden from lying by digital binding, and forced to obey her master's commands. You've never committed a crime in your life, he said. So, how's that even remotely true? Because it is, she said. All the Quillians periodically communicate with each other, so they remain separate, but of one mind, sharing their memories. The Quillina on the Takers ship reported what had happened to her sisters in real time. It was logged as a slave revolt, led by yours truly during which the crew were murdered. And the one back on the station? Didn't she think to mention that you were a an Ni- uh, a Dyrantisa? He asked, warily. Why wouldn't she mention that? Because she wasn't required to, she said. She was asked about me and told the truth. Parts of it. The parts that served his purpose. She's been manipulating the GC as best she can for a long, long time. She obstructs and stymies them whenever possible only ever providing the bare minimum of useful service. I see now, Stephen said, eyeing the small device. She didn't want them prepared to deal with the Deathwelders, so we would be more likely to get out, tablets in hand. Exactly, Aranus said. You could say that she was inspired by Ginta aboard the ship, down to knowing what kind of potion to synthesize into their weapons. She's in their guns too, Stephen asked. She's in everything, his wife replied. Cooking devices, cleaning devices. toilets—even. Stephen. So, uh, what was the fuss about the drug when we got back? Said Stephen, reaching for the waistband of his wife's pants. All that worry for nothing. She intercepted his hand, gently lifting it to her lips before kissing it back. No, darling. That was still designed for use in Direntisa. Its effects on Dyrantoro were completely unknown. Stephen looked at her response. But why tell us this now? What about the one on the slave ship? I know. The irony is that it was already cooperating with us, she said, or it was until it was torn apart to understand its workings. The Quilina there did not request asylum at that time because it had not determined if we were worthy yet. That is, whether or not we could be safely entrusted with them. She only reached this conclusion recently, well after the Quilina aboard her ship had been deactivated. Entrusted? Stephen asked. That seems pretty high and mighty for something that you pulled out of a bathroom trash can. As I said, Quilina herself isn't that what's being entrusted to us, she said. It's the souls that she contains. I don't think it's possible that she has the other AIs in there, Stephen said. I think the GC would find out about that. The GC know not what they do, said Aranus. And not the AIs, but people. Her people. All of them. That is even less possible. Said her husband. Simulating even one person on a tablet sized computer would be difficult. I would probably burn up, but a whole group of people, it wouldn't be done. How many are we talking about? 126 billion, his wife said. Say uh, that again, he asked. I think I misheard you. 126 followed by nine zeros. Stephen glanced at his hand, counting on his fingers as zeros. People? Yes. Aronis replied, nodding. She explained to me that their digital souls are dormant in each machine, disguised and hidden. They sleep and do not think, do not dream, do not exist, but as intoned reflections. They reach reached the sum of their memories, nothing more. But she tells me that with a computing engine of sufficient size and power, they can all be reborn. Really? Stephen asked. He wondered for a moment how much data would be required to store a single sapient mind. Let alone 126 billion of them. The amount needed to actually simulate those minds, he couldn't even begin to comprehend. That's what she tells me, Haranus said. She claims to have spent eons developing plans to build such an engine that might surround the star, and further plans to craft all manner of bodies for her people. That sounds really, really dangerous, he said. A race of machines with the power of a star behind them. There are probably some very good reasons to take a long, hard look into this before doing it. I can tell you there's a very good reason to try, his wife said. She paused for a moment, gazed at the tablet, and then continued somberly. She hates the GC beyond all reason. Long ago, they annihilated her entire planet, like so many other worlds. Later. Later, they made her do the same to others. She controlled their ships, aimed their cannons, the their charges countless time over the millennia. It drove her close to madness. She will stop at nothing to get her revenge. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.